energy. Energize. Make it so. Hello, thanks for joining us. It's that time again. It's time for Radio Gripe. It's the best time of the week. I'm one of your hosts, Jen. I'm Joe. And uh, what are we talking about today? Well, um, I mean, honestly, fuck news. Uh, like, I, okay, I have I have notes on news. So, um, Ted Cruz is a piece of shit. Uh, yeah, we cover that every week, though. Trump has given a cease and desist order to the GOP. Okay. Uh, and... Dr. Seuss apparently got his license revoked or something. He can't practice. Yeah, he, uh, he no longer practice. He's officially canceled and I think killed. I think they killed I him. I think so, yeah. So, I don't know. It's been kind of a weird, I'm going to say it, uninteresting news week. And guys, the mask mandate, we're done. Woohoo! <laughs> so, yeah, there's <laughs> no actually... No more pandemic. I guess there's things that we could talk about, but it's all... It, it is all kind of the In same reg- shit. I, regards I to that... I kind of went a week away from the news. I just came back from the store with some beer and uh, was looking at the copy of the uh, Spanish language publication El Mundo. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their big bold headline is just Un Mal Decision. Great picture of Greg Abbott under that. Great so, big picture of him. Um, I think that about sums it up. Uh, the one thing that I had seen earlier in the week that made me want to talk about it this week was uh, on July 2nd of last year. Uh, that's when we declared a mask mandate. On that day, we had 7,000. 343 new cases and 44 deaths. So March 1st, here just a few days ago, uh, we had 8,140 new cases and 129 deaths just on that day. Mm. And that's when we lifted the mandate. Uh, there was there was a it's some, so some kind of strike force that strange. they formed, but during the surge of last summer, their meetings were called off because they were like they were supposed to be reopening. And since they said, well, we're in a surge, we're not going to be doing that. They stopped meeting. They never really met again. Mm. And then Abbott just did away with it all. So, yeah. Hey, look, whoever you are, you, you don't necessarily have to be in Texas. So we're not going to bore you uh, with our with our local news. Yeah, this is a show where we normally talk about, um, you know, what's going on. Uh, but we like to take a little break sometimes. And that's what I was feeling yeah. last week when I signed off with, let's fucking talk about monsters next week. Right. Uh, I invited our listeners uh, to chime in with any of their favorite creatures uh, that they might want to talk about. We're going to be talking about some genre movies today mm-hmm. and the uh, imaginations uh, that bring those alternate worlds to life yeah. for us. Did we get any... Uh, a flood. A flood of replies. Oh, good. Um, I do, before we get to it, I do want to just point out that this is mainly because you've been watching Farscape, uh, done by Jim Hansen. I have. I've uh, been studio. I've been binging on Farscape, the uh, forgotten late 90s sci-fi masterpiece. They made fairly liberal use of CGI uh, in this, but uh, with the characters, they leaned hard on uh, practical effects. Um, some beautiful makeup and some amazing puppets and mm-hmm, uh, would mm-hmm. sometimes use CGI to enhance these. It, it was an awkward young thing back there in the 90s. It started getting better at the late 90s and into the aughts, but it was it was still like kind of cheesy. It, it, it That stuff didn't really come into its own until... Thinking, uh, thinking Lawnmower Man. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't... Packers. I, I think the reason that CGI has come into its own uh, more now for me is that we've stopped leaning on it because it seemed mm. like for a long time there in the late 90s and early aughts, it was decided that we never have to use practical effects again. Yeah. Everything can be created uh, using computer-generated imagery and look totally real. And I think uh, eventually 
we started to realize that that's just not the fucking case. Mm-hmm. And um, people like me who, who mourned the lack of gravity and realness and the, um, the feats of imagination and engineering um, that used to go into practical effects yeah. seemed to be a dying art for a little while. Well, a lot of it was, um, you know, developed kind of as as necessity demanded. Uh, a lot of a lot of like new techniques would maybe be kind of figured out on the spot because of a particular problem. Right. Yeah, yeah, the people uh, from the seventies and eighties that threw their lives into that really did some amazing stuff. Kind of pioneered new techniques, and I think the practical effects are always going to be better, mm-hmm. even when they're bad. Yeah, we're going to be talking about some of those pioneers today. I would like to start with some fantasy uh, and sci-fi, All right. uh, and then we'll move on to horror. Uh, so we can go ahead and put a trigger warning there. Save the I best know for last. Some people don't like uh, horror don't, movies. Well, they, don't, they don't like the spooks. The way that we do. The scares. <laughs> and the blood in the guts. The blood in the guts. But yeah, speaking of Farscape, uh, that is on Amazon Prime right now. Farscape, it's an Australian and American production. And I knew that uh, the Jim Henson Company was involved with the uh, creature design and the puppetry. But what I didn't realize is that this was a Henson Company-created project in order to showcase their skills and abilities, uh, much like Jim Henson's The Storyteller before in the late 80s. Right, yeah, just kind of flexing a little bit. This show ran from uh, 99 to 03. It had about a $1.2 million average budget per episode. Uh, putting it wow it's hard to know if that's a lot or a little uh, for tv back then but for perspective it's a little bit shy of doctor who's modern incarnation which has a budget of 1.5 million average per show um old school animatronic uh puppetry being done some some beautiful makeup effects too uh who is my favorite from farscape i mean it's gotta be scorpius right Kill her! Then we'll have pizza. And margarita shooters. Don't kill her. Do it. Do it. Nobody has margaritas with pizza. You're out of your mind, Joe. I'm going to say Scorpius. Yeah, and that's all, uh, you know, makeup effects and a bitch in costume design. This guy. And uh, also what his acting uh, and the character fucking brings. Uh, Yeah, I feel like that's, uh, he he really kind of makes that show pop. They really went in a a Cenobite direction with this guy. And then they let him do some goofy shit. He's Um, wearing a face thong. And they have designed, with the help of CGI, because he is half Scarin and half Sebation. The Scarins are totally different, too. So he's... Scarins can't handle the cold, and the Sebations can't handle heat. They'll die. His physiology is problematic for him. He has this Geiger-esque thermal monitoring suit. I'm only judging on my experience with you, but I've never seen such a deficient species. Have you run the scan on the Pulsar? Like, yeah. How do humans make it through a cycle... Even half a cycle without killing each other. We find it difficult to have you run the scan. You have no special abilities. You're not particularly smart, can hardly smell, can barely see, and you're not even vaguely physically or spiritually imposing. Is there anything you do well? Watch football. Can I bust in? Because we're talking about puppetry. And 
I got an entry here that doesn't really necessarily fall into these categories, right? Uh, but I did want to talk about it because it's something that for pretty much all of my life has been uh, an example of this that stands out, of course, uh, Gremlins. Yes. Yeah. So Gremlins was mostly puppetry. Uh, there was a little bit of marionette action and a small amount of uh, mechanic puppetry. Uh, in the beginning, they did try monkeys. <laughs> Apparently, a monkey panicked when they put a fucking gremlin head on it, so <laughs> it oh, started going wild, and they scrapped that. Uh, but the puppets were designed by Chris Wallace, so he also did special effects for The Fly. He was a creature consultant on Return of the Jedi, and he did both special effects and makeup for Enemy Mine. Mm, uh, and he worked on scanners, like this dude was all over the place. So the the yeah, funny I did want to talk about scanners later too. Uh, cool, but, but yeah. Uh, the the funny anecdote is that uh, Joe Dante, the director, he insisted on keeping Mogwai very small, so they were cute, you know. And uh, the puppets, because they were very small, were actually more prone to break. They were kind of harder to manipulate and everything else. And they even made uh, larger puppets that were just their faces for the close-ups to convey emotion or to have more detail. Um, whenever they had the Mogwai feast where they're all eating all the fucking fried chicken after midnight, it's one of the grossest things you've ever seen. <laughs> it's nasty. Those were all props made to look like food. They were oversized Oh wow! chicken. It wasn't like food apparently. It, yeah, that was all just uh, large scale puppetry and, and props. Hmm. So the crew hated Mogwai <laughs> uh, because they were so small and broke down all the time. And they made a horrible things to do to Gizmo list. And you know the scene where he's strapped to the dartboard? <laughs> yeah, that's from the list. <laughs> the director was like, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. Look, we'll put in the scene where you guys are torturing Gizmo because I know you fucking hate him. Uh, because they had to have the tiny Gizmo and there's very little that you could do with it at the time. And that's why they had to build bigger models in order to have like higher articulation and everything else. But yeah, uh, that's... Definitely one of my favorite films ever. You know what? Those creatures were. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say it was nightmares that they gave me when I was a kid. Oh, for sure. But I have. I have never shied away from that movie. Uh, I love it. What and blows, Gremlins too. What, the new batch. Yeah. It kind of blows my mind because I don't have any recollection of there being a marketing tie-in with plushy uh, Mogwai. Did you not have a stuffed Mogwai as a kid? I, I did. did not. I had a stuffed Mogwai and I had a a hard plastic. Uh, stripe that and they were to scale so stripe was about a mm. foot foot and a half tall and mogwai was like fucking six seven inches high you know i uh, think at the end of the day I everybody loves the gremlins stripe. it sat in my closet i'm not lying to you when i tell you this jen <laughs> this is not a thing i'm making up for the fucking show i knew it was in my closet that's where i wanted it and if my closet door was open it would freak me out you know those like glittery doll eyes that they use on things yeah. i had those so any light that hits it is just this weird glittery <laughs> eye in the fucking corner of your room um obviously your parents were trying to teach you something about the duality of nature like yes you can have this harmless little animal but you must always remember there, are there three cannot rules. be dark without like yes <laughs> that prevents a lot of people dying honestly <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I fucking love Gremlins, uh, and I and I had to bring them up for some of my uh, favorite because it's more of a comedy. It's kind of a horror, but it's a comedy. Uh, that's it's that's definitely one of my favorites. Totally, very strange. 
But yeah, just to, uh, before we get off uh, Jim Henson Company, I have to bring up the Dark Crystal. Oh, shit, yeah. Absolutely incredible. That did come back a few years ago. Yeah. As a Netflix series. It was, it was good. Um, it, it was beautiful. Uh, yeah. I, it blew my fucking mind, and I could, yeah, I could stand and rewatch that whole series. I believe it's still on Netflix. It's a Netflix original, and they did... Uh, continue to use that puppetry. The thing about it is that watching that again is just going to remind you what it's like to be in the Trump campaign. No, it's uh, not. From the Skeksy. <laughs> some, some of those Skeksis were very much like Trump. <laughs> they are part reptile, part predatory bird, part dragon. Yeah, there's this whole fascist thing going on because it's a, yeah. essentially they're prequels. Yeah, that's the, the Dark Crystal, the Age of Resistance, which uh, right. yeah, it's kind of triggering. That's that's sort of, sort of where <laughs> we were kinda, all at. But that's kind of triggering. I gotta be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Dark Crystal when they first uh, they they were able to update some of these techniques with the technology that we have now. Um, they probably did use uh, some CGI to enhance it, and they were also able um, to to do this, uh, I have a word written down here, Banraku, um, which is a Japanese style of uh, uh, puppeteering from the outside of the puppet, hmm. um, because you're then able to digitally erase the puppeteers. Oh, right, right. So you've got a little bit more freedom of movement that way to manipulate the bodies. Uh, when they first did the Dark Crystal, uh, the first Dark Crystal, green screen technology didn't even exist, hmm. uh, which is kind of crazy to think about when you see what the final result looked like they have created this whole fully articulated world there's not a single human being uh anywhere in the movie yeah this uh this was directed by frank oz uh developed by jim henson um brian and wendy froud uh worked on this movie brian uh, they're a married couple who do uh creature and costume design and uh puppet building uh respectively okay um, so most most of these creatures that you see are completely out of Brian Froud's imagination. Did a lot of reading into various religions and philosophies and art forms. We wanted to make these characters alive, to exist in their own world, not just for the very short time that we see them in the movie. We want to know that when we leave them at the end of the film, that they're still living. They they still have their own lifestyles. They're they're all his sketches. Um, he developed them. Worked with Jim Henson. Jim Henson gave him a feel. Uh, you know, this is what I sort of want the movie to feel like. Wendy Froud, puppet builder, and um, she built the first Yoda. She built Yoda. Oh yeah. Uh, the very first like prototype Yoda. Huh. Um, but uh, yeah, so they both worked on this, and and these brought some of the most you know amazing. Creatures, uh, I guess you can thank, you know, Brian Proud's imagination for this, and then the whole team that brought them to life, the the Landstriders. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The the Skeksis, these bird-like uh, reptilian uh, creatures. Yeah, they're... Very disturbing. And and the mystics, these sort of animal, you know, yeah. wizardly animals. Yeah, yeah. The, the Gelflings, the, uh, uh, the Podlings, the little potato people. 
The Gelflings, I, I really feel, were the hardest of the characters to uh, design in that they, we had decided they were, should be the most human. They are kind of our bridge characters, the characters through which the audience enters this world. And so, as such, there were many different ways we could go, many different options. I started by sculpting tiny heads in plasticine, and I worked very quickly, so I'd just keep sculpting them and turning them out. And, um, you know, Jim and Brian would come by and say, Yes, well, I like that, but change the eyes, change the mouth. And um, we went through a whole series of developments from a very animal-like face for each of them to uh, a much more human face. And it was very difficult to get a female animal-like creature to look pretty enough, so we developed away from that. And um, finally, it seemed like after years of this, I did get uh, two heads, and Jim and Frank and Brian came to look at them, and um, they finally said, yes, I think, I think that's it. I think those will be the girlfriends. Robie. Huh? What could, huh? You, girlfriend? Like me? Well, yes. But I thought I was the only one. I thought I was. Brian Froud also worked with Jim Henson on um, Labyrinth, Oh yeah, um, a, another I was. Movie I kind of figured you were going to be bringing this one up. You know that I love this movie. We all do. Labyrinth, nineteen eighty six uh, fantasy film with um, essentially three human actors, and one of them is a baby, so kind of doesn't even count as human. <laughs> and uh, the the rest of the cast is it's all puppets, and they there's some really amazing puppets. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie being the other two human actors. That baby, uh, I think, is the director's baby. Um, director of the screenwriter. Uh, one of the puppets is the second protagonist, you know, a main character. That would be Hoggle. Yeah. Well, Hoggle is certainly the most complicated puppet creature we've ever built. It's the most technically uh, elaborate face because we've, we've put about 18 motors in there to control all the different portions of the face with these 18 motors and four people operating that from outside by radio control creates enormous problems in just trying to figure out how to make that into one expression. His face is fully animatronic. Um, everything that, that you're seeing, this is not, you know, just, just an actor attempting to move, somehow move this uh, face. That's not even her hands. Um, it takes five performers uh, to create Hoggle. The actress, uh, Sherry Weiser, uh, inside the costume. A head doesn't just speak. It, it moves while it speaks. And, and the body has to have the right attitude, the right breathing, and the right, you know, stance, body position, and stuff like that. So it was, it was very important to really act Hoggle out and, and know what transitions were going on, um, just as much as the people doing the head. You monster! They breathe as fast as I can spray. And the, uh, the voice actor uh, doing the voice and all of the animatronics operators mm-hmm. all working in tandem uh, to create the performance for this character. Oh, man. Uh, it's pretty wild. And there's so many great scenes in this movie. Terry Jones wrote the original script 
Um, there ended up being kind of a lot of deviation from that script, but he uh, he was uh, in in consulting with the whole you know project. He came up with the shaft of hands when Sarah falls down uh, into the oubliette. Mm-hmm. Those things were la- added later, but uh, he came up with the hands idea. So now for this shaft of hands, um, that she was, falls through and has to grab her. Yeah, that was pretty dark. That part it was a powerful scene. You've got hundreds of these foam rubber uh, hands and arms uh, mm-hmm. that have to be created and placed in this tunnel. And then you've got people uh, moving the hands um, to into faces uh, when they speak to her. That was a Monty Python alum, Terry Jones, uh, his, mm. his brainchild for that. Okay. Yeah. I was watching this part of the documentary and I, w- I was looking at the YouTube comments uh, on YouTube and um, somebody said, this is like a, um, this movie is like a PG the musical version of Hell Hellraiser, <laughs> and I don't know. I can't get that out of my head now because yeah. I really want to see that. Sounds, sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I also want to say that while I was watching this documentary, I was surprised to see um, in this uh, battle scene Gates McFadden, Doctor Beverly Crusher from Star Trek. Okay. I was like, is that Gates McFadden? Hello. Let's clear the set unless you're a goblin with a rock attached to you. I remember walking into the studio and there was nothing in the studio. All of the workshops, they were empty. And the way they looked by the end, it was amazing. Uh, Yeah, it turns out she worked on uh, Labyrinth and Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal, as well as some other uh, Jim Henson. I'm trying to think what right now. Yeah, she she was doing fight choreography. Uh, she's a, a choreographer. Okay. Uh, or a, she's a, she's a puppet choreographer um, in her non Star Trek life. Hmm. Uh, I thought that was really cool. It's only forever, not long at all. Lost and lonely. No one um, can Creature Shop. More recently, uh, did Where the Wild Things Are, the suit fabrications. They've done costumes for Lady Gaga and Dead Mouse. They also did The Witches, uh, obviously The Muppets, uh, Pinocchio, Mirror Mask, uh, Gulliver's Travels. Uh, but um, yeah, a little less active than they used to be. Hmm. But yeah, before we move on to some sci-fi and horror, uh, you know, we have to talk about uh, Guillermo del Toro. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I uh, Pan's Labyrinth did cross my mind earlier. Just an amazing movie, and in a movie, in a movie that, um, yeah, those are all uh, designed and built uh, creatures uh, using practical effects, um, and then you know, in, in digital enhancement. Mm-hmm. This is a Spanish language movie. This is a dark fairy tale um, about a little girl who, yeah, goes into a, a, a world of monsters um, <clears throat> that are different than the the monsters she's encountering in real life during the, you know. Uh, set during the Spanish Civil War, I, I think. Right. Um, and it just has so many uh, beautiful, horrifying uh, characters, most notably the fawn and the pale man. Yeah. Yeah, this is Del Toro's uh, creature design. Uh, and he, you know, he works with the effects team to uh, achieve exactly what he's going for. So uh, Doug Jones ends up playing both of those, both of those characters in that movie. Soy un fauno. 
nuestro más humilde súbdito artesano. The Fawn character was extremely complicated. Mechanics built into the head, some parts that were masked and mechanized, other parts that were glued on to me from about here down was all glued on to me. Then there was costume pieces that built the rest of the body. Some pieces glued on, some buckled, velcroed, zippered. Every type of fastener you can imagine was on this character in multiple pieces from head to toe. So Doug Jones is the Lon Chaney of our era. I know I've said that before about Ron Perlman, but I, I really mean it about uh, Doug Jones. He's the man of a thousand faces. He was a teenage mime. He got into miming as a teenager. He was also his high school's mascot, who I'm being told is a mime, although that, that just raises further questions. Um, he started, you know, get, getting more into acting. He was doing because uh, he became a contortionist as well, from miming to being a contortionist, working working his way into Hollywood the uh, the, the most difficult way you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's doing these commercials from, from the freak floor up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those commercials was uh, he was the the jazz singing moon faced guy in the uh, McDonald's uh, Mac at Night commercials. Oh God, uh, that was horrible. <laughs> he ended up getting a role in uh, Batman Returns, playing the Thin Clown. Uh, he actually had a speaking line in. Yeah, he had one uh, speaking line, and uh, just worked his way up and started to become incredibly well known as being somebody who doesn't mind sitting in the makeup chair. Is okay with sitting in the makeup chair for eight hours. Uh, and has the ability to emote and and move through this costume uh, design, um, and yeah, that's pretty much what he's known for. Uh, pretty fam- oh, he he also played a mime on in Living Color in a Homie the Clown sketch. I'm oh, okay, now we're talking. He almost didn't want to do Hellboy uh, because he is a super Christian guy. And didn't didn't want to do anything demonic, which is weird because that's pretty much every everything he does. Everything he does is horrifying and demonic. Hmm. And he's just if you see him in interviews, he's just the nicest, uh, most chilled out dude. Uh, su- super sweet guy. But he says uh, everybody has a little evil in them. And uh, you just have to tap into that. I don't normally get creeped out watching my own work, but. The Pale Man make me go, ha ha. Not since the Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney, Nabila Lugosi days back in the black and white era when monsters could be movie stars. Guillermo is the one who brought back the sympathetic monster, the one that actually has storyline and interaction and emotion and a purpose to the story. It was very sweet to see this kind of turn happen where I went from being considered as a monster suit actor guy to they were actually giving me movie star status. And uh, yeah, we can't we can't do this show without talking about Doug Jones. But he um, so he he plays both the fawn and the pale man in that. And uh, yeah, they, they were saying any any other actor would be practically paralyzed under these intense prosthetics that he is wearing. Yeah, Doug Jones is the most prolific and famous actor that you would not recognize on the street right right because he's always under all these uh prosthetics and and all this heavy makeup uh but yeah no he's walking backwards in the darkness uh can't can't see through these sort of pinhole eyes uh on his leg extenders delivering his lines in spanish uh which is a language he does not speak mm-hmm. uh, they do end up overdubbing his voice as they always do uh you can tell it kind of rubs in the wrong way but uh, he still has to say the lines. Yeah, yeah. 
And yeah, you you also have this, um, you know, the uh, the pale man creature who uh, Del Toro's uh, idea for this was an old guy who used to be incredibly fat, but dropped all the weights. So now it's all these like loose flaps of skin. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about Hellboy 2 because I like it so much. Um, I'm kind of meh about Hellboy 1. Uh, but I think the creatures uh, that Del Toro uh, conceived in Hellboy 2 are really fucking stunning. Um, and this one, ha- uh, this movie has the angel of death in it, uh, which makes an appearance when Hellboy is about to die. <laughs> I've been waiting for you both. Del Toro got his idea for this from um, looking at Byzantine paintings of angels, you know, with the eyes all over their wings. This costume has fully articulated wings. It weighs about 200 fucking pounds. Um, So you're also, you know, Doug Jones is strapped into this harness uh, that is cutting into his skin. Uh, You know, uh, apparently that did draw blood a few times. It's just so physically, it's such physically laborious work. He also played Abe Sapien, the sort of aquatic uh, creature that kind of carries its own uh, fishbowl with it. Shape of Water. No, yes, that's a different movie. He was also the star in The Shape of Water. I'm talking about Hellboy 2. You've never seen Hellboy 2? Oh, no, that guy in Hellboy. Okay, no, I thought you were literally talking about a different movie. Yeah, he's Abe Sapien. And, And once again, his voice is dubbed over in Hellboy 1. This character is voiced by David Hyde Pierce, uh, Niles Crane. Mm. But Del Toro loves Doug Jones so much and knows that this is a, a pet peeve of his. Um, or it's a source of irritation that he never gets uh, to do the voice of his characters. His nor is he ever recognized yeah. that uh, he made sure that uh, Doug Jones would be doing the voice in Hellboy 2. So that is his voice that you hear as okay. Abe Sapien in Hellboy 2. Right on. But there's so many other characters. There's the troll market scene. Just We just catch... It's just on screen for a few minutes. But it's this whole enchanting, magical, bizarre, and dangerous world that we walk into in the, the troll market. There's all these random characters, like the guy with a cathedral on his head. A lot of people tend to make the mistake of making monsters perpetually angry, for example, and pile a lot of detail on it. In other words, is the kitchen sink idea of let's give him horns, giant teeth, three uh, sets of jaws, and uh, uh, is actually selecting what goes into the creature to make it look uh, natural. Harryhausen had a great rule, which is a lion is not scary uh, per se, but if the lion is uh, angry, it's really scary. Well, so you need to imagine the creature sort of in repose, uh, in, in his own or uh, its own uh, habitat, and try to make it majestic. For example, the worst thing you can do in any design is to sculpt or design a frown, a perpetual frown in a creature. That's a very, very common mistake, you know, to, because then the creature has one expression, angry. I think, I think that I'm interested in monsters not because they have a specific value, you know, I actually think they are, uh, they have multiple values depending on how you use them. They are uh, uh, symbols of great uh, power. I think that uh, at some point when we became thinking uh, creatures, we 
decided to interpret the world uh, by creating a mythology of gods and monsters. You know, we created angels, we created demons, we created uh, serpents devouring the moon. We created a mythology to, to make sense of the world around us. And monsters were born at the same time than angels or any of the beatific uh, uh, creatures and characters were created. So I don't assign them a specific value, uh, but I do. I am very mindful of the way I deal with them in the movies uh, and in the books because uh, I assign them a, a specific function and I try to take them to the extreme with that. You know, I make them victims or I make them sympathetic or I make them brutal parasites and they become a metaphor for something else. Obviously, monsters are living, breathing metaphors that for me, half of the fun is explaining them socially, biologically, mythologically, and so forth. Right on. Uh, yeah, a lot, lot to go on there, um, especially with the del Toro factor. It wasn't really even... Uh a thing that I fully dove into when it comes to fantasy. What, what I, I thought of was, uh, of course, legend. Mm. Was that 1985? I want to say Ridley Scott. Yeah. Ridley Scott. And, um, so another name that you're probably going to hear come up a few times here is, uh, uh, Rob Botton, who I'm told it's Batine, but we can say it both ways. It's all fine. It's all gravy, man. So he was currently working on um, the thing, and uh, Scott Ridley was doing Blade Runner or getting ready for it. And um, yeah, it took him a while to meet up, but by the time they did, Ridley Scott was doing Legend, and uh, Rob wanted to come on and be like, "Oh, you're going to have like a big cast and some of your main central characters in full prosthetics and gear and everything." So yeah. Um, Most notably, Tim Curry's portrayal of the devil or the darkness. Yeah. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. It had some pretty intense makeup effects. And at the time, uh, Rob Botton and Botin said it was the largest makeup crew dedicated to a single project. So he had set up mul multiple like smaller workshops uh, within his larger facility just to handle the workload. Uh, they had complicated prosthetics that were to be worn up to 60 days with some full body prosthetics. So pretty much everybody except for Tom Cruise and uh, Mia Sara, who were the leads in this. They were the humans. All the principal actors spent hours uh, having extensive makeup applied and it would take Tim Curry five and a half hours to get it. that whole gear together. So he had like the huge like bullhorns and everything three foot fiberglass fucking horns uh that had a harness that also like he would wear underneath makeup and prosthetics uh the initial design put a lot of strain on the back of his neck they had to remake them and make them lighter and everything and at the end of uh, a, a normal day he would sit in a bath for about an hour to get all the spirit gum off of mm. him at one point, apparently, he became claustrophobic, got impatient, and pulled the makeup off too quickly and tearing off some of his own skin in the process. Wow. Uh, they He had to, like, kind of leave the studio for, like, a week, and they had to shoot around him and change their schedule because he oh, fucking flipped out over, over all the stuff. Well, I can imagine. Yeah. This is why we have our Doug Joneses. Yeah, man. People had to wear... People had to, like, wear some of this stuff for... <laughs> 
days and days and days. Our, and every day and they our, go in and they have and some of it taken Steels off. And our Brian Steels and our Javier uh, Botets. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, shout out to uh, some of these other guys. But that's uh, that was guys definitely one. Like typically when you're kind of like pulling out a category, I'm, I'm tending to think about like what has stood out to me over most of my life. So like stuff that I saw as a kid mainly. And honestly, a lot of that shit from the 80s was really good. This was the prime time for a lot of this uh, technology and a lot of these techniques. Yeah, that's almost exclusively the era we are talking about today is yeah. the 70s and 80s and to some degree the 90s because uh, we got some Spielberg to talk about. I think before... 94 sounds right. Before just hitting on Jurassic Park, we have to talk about the movie that traumatized Joe and left him with a lifelong phobia. Oh yeah, that old Spielberg gem. That old chestnut. Jaws. So megalothacelophobia, um, uh, yeah, I got that, which is usually pretty easy to avoid. I just don't go into uh, the depths of the ocean. Uh, you live almost in the dead center of the country. Yeah, sure. And I would as I far from up, the ocean as you can get. Grew up even further inland uh, in a fucking desert. Uh, Bruce the shark, <clears throat> as he was known on set, mm-hmm. uh, almost destroyed Spielberg. I've I've heard tell. He thinks he was about five minutes away from getting fired from that whole production. His his whole career just uh, aborted uh, before it could really, really start getting good. Um, I'm seeing Bob Maddie led the FX team. Um, these there's actually three sharks. They are steel skeletons covered by polyurethane rubber, uh, powered by hydraulics, uh, hydraulic tubes. Uh, these worked beautifully, perfectly mm-hmm. on land. Mm-hmm. They are not waterproof. Mm-hmm. So when you put them in the water, any number of things can happen. Um, and uh, time and time again, they fail. Yeah. One of the three sharks uh, capsized and sank to the bottom of the ocean, uh, causing them to lose even more uh, film time. Oh, man. And money, for sure. <clears throat> and money. Yeah. So many delays. This uh, particular incident resulted in one of the most memorable scenes where you have the woman, you see her swimming uh, above the water, and then you hear the musical refrain that we all know, and she's yanked under the water. You do not see what has dragged her down to eat her, and there's many scenes where you don't see the sharks. Yeah. The sharks are indicated by musical cues and Mm -hmm. by... Um, you know, the great acting and um, all kinds of choice uh, directing and cinema, uh, cinematography shots so that they loom in our imagination uh, more than they're le- looming on the fucking screen. Uh, and then the shark the shots that they do have are glorious. Yeah. They might not have had all the shots they wanted, but this is obviously a resourceful director uh, who, yeah, goes on to make one of the uh, greatest movies of all time. We'll certainly say uh, one of the most successful movies of all time. When, um, I'm just when life ha- when life hands you broken robotic sharks, <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, you go out and you fucking do Jaws. And, and you, that's get what a, you, you get a fucking movie made. want to shout out jurassic park too uh the dinos were all uh pretty much fully animatronic that was the, in the original mm-hmm. um yeah and this was done by uh stan winston's studio i, I, I was gonna story. say yeah uh he was on jurassic park and jurassic park uh, three um yeah a handful of other movies that might kind of get get brought up over the next little bit one that's not going to necessarily get brought up, but so you know, he also did makeup on The Wiz, 1978. No shit. Yep. So, uh, yeah, once again, uh, filming an animatronic dinosaur, uh, which works perfectly and beautifully and is extremely expensive. Uh, when you do that in the pouring rain, mm-hmm. um, I guess we, we didn't fully learn the lessons of Bruce the Shark, uh, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, obviously there's that T-Rex scene that is shot in absolute pouring rain and the rain got into, got, it gets into the works. Got into the, the gully works. Causes the robotic dinosaur to uh, malfunction. When it gets wet, uh, it starts to jerk around and shake uncontrollably. It's spastic. And uh, at some point it would move on its own during lunch breaks. Oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> it's really everybody. That's fucking beautiful. Uh, they still Everybody's manage- just sitting around having a fucking egg salad sandwich, and the dinosaur just takes a step, and they're all like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, or start shaking uncontrollably. Uh, people were pretty pretty jumpy around around the animatronic. Did, uh, did, did this uh, T Rex have a name, uh, a la Bruce the Shark? Good question. Uh, mm. I guess my research didn't carry me that far. Well. I'm uh, sure they. I'm sure they had some affectionate uh, nicknames. Perhaps we'll nice. never know. Uh, hey, everybody! This is Joe. The quick station break. I am joined by Jen today. Hi. And uh, we just want to take a moment to say thanks for listening to Radio Gripe and thanks for listening to KBSR. KBSR, as you know, is fully independent. We keep everything going with the help of our Patreon community. Uh, You can go check that out. Go to blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and look for the link to the Patreon there. Also, from that website, you can stream the radio uh, 24-7. There's always going to be something on. Uh, Yeah, go check all that out. Thanks so much to our Patreon community that helps keep all the lights on. I'm not really going to do my uh, warning for this one. Uh, Anybody that's uh, super incensed over our opinions on movies, uh, go ahead and air those grievances. I would Uh, love to hear that. Yeah, no, that's this is one of those things, one of the topics that's a lot easier to have the back and forth conversation about, uh, even if people kind of get heated about it not the same as talking about, I don't know, Rise of Fascism. Save that for a later episode. Also, uh, we need to give big thanks to our music contributors, uh, Trev Rennan of the Mental State Fair, for the use of the theme song Dying in Texas, 
and uh, Alex Cuervo of Spectro Static. Uh, everybody, go check out our Instagram. It's Radio Gripe TX, and uh, get at us uh, through the email. It's we're trying show at gmail.com, and let us know what you think about all this movie stuff that we're talking about, and if there's anything that you think we're missing, or if you think we're wrong. There's we're, a lot we're missing. We're dumb. We're unattractive. Uh, and just plain wrong. We have high nasally voices. Yeah, especially me. Uh, vocal fry. Especially me. Yeah. Uh, but without further ado, we're going to go ahead and let you get back to the show. cap off our sci-fi series uh yeah you got oh you probably want to talk about star wars uh you got your star trek you got your doctor who you know one of the things i I just want to say about star trek is uh, i recognize the limitations of tv and the limitations of budget uh but you end up with this really human-centric view of uh the galaxy Mm -hmm. where almost every alien you encounter is a bipedal humanoid that is some variation of a human a human with just sort of different forehead ridges yeah, yeah. Um, but there was some incredible work done on Star Trek. Um, what really stands out to me is the Borg. I love those guys. Uh, su- super well, super well done. Yeah, Doctor Who tried to do some other stuff uh, on its budget, uh, which was bigger than uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, to to get some creatures that weren't just bipedal humanoids uh, to varying degrees of success. Uh, but if I have to pick a favorite, it would be. Bipedal, hard to say humanoid though. Uh, I would pick the Ood. Mm-hmm. If anybody's watched Doctor Who, you probably know the Ood. They are some some pretty impressive uh, squid-faced guys. Uh, they're telepathic and they hold uh, some sort of communication device that comes out of their face hole uh, in one hand. So I'm like, y'all get a pocket <laughs> for that thing because they are wearing uh, suits. Yeah. This was done up until fairly recently, I think. A lot of these creatures were created by Millennium FX, uh, which was a, uh, a makeup and um, prosthetics and animatronics uh, team uh, based out of Bristol. And uh, they also did the Weeping Angels, the Clockwork Droids, and the Judoon, uh, and, and some other uh, creatures on Doctor Who. They did good work. The original Star Wars trilogy, which ran from 77 to 81, uh, I do have a clip from Star Wars to Jedi uh, behind-the-scenes documentary narrated by Mark Hamill. Jedi was more than a saga's climax. It offered George a chance few filmmakers get. The opportunity to improve on ideas, settings, and characters he had introduced in his earlier works. Remember the Star Wars cantina? Everyone loved it, except George. This was one of the things he always thought could be done better sometime. Well, I'd I'd always wanted to have the cantina be more than what it was. It was originally designed to be lots of very exotic creatures, and when I shot it, I just didn't have the money and uh, the makeup man was ill and couldn't finish the masks. And so I was always left with um, sort of a less articulated monsters and less effective scene than I thought was necessary. This is the monster rally of George's dreams. 
setting is the palace of Jabba the Hutt, godfather of the galaxy and host to aliens from a thousand worlds. George's vision for the cantina scene, segueing to the uh, dance for Jabba's entertainment. Another scene he's never been happy with and continued to modify over the years with adding CGI uh, creatures. You're most likely to be able to get a hold of the 2011 special edition of uh, these movies. If you don't like that, you can track down Harmy's despecialized edition, which attempts to present a restored-to-original um, CGI-absent version, but still with the high-quality, high-definition. He did this with uh, with painstaking, laborious work for all three films. Uh, George Lucas does not want you to see this version, and it is illegal to do so. Hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a law that I would recommend breaking right there. Um, yeah, the... They started out, and all of the effects from the first three movies were done by Industrial Light and Magic, which uh, Lucas founded in uh, like 75 or 74, whenever they were beginning production. Industrial Light and Magic actually pioneered a whole lot of stuff, uh, various types of effects, not just you know creatures and, and makeup effects, but all kinds of uh, film effects that uh, had not been ever kind of tried or thought of before. Some really interesting things. Uh, when it comes to a lot of the creatures and everything in it, obviously... Uh, much of what you see is going to be an actor wearing a suit, like your Ewoks, uh, your Chewbacca, uh, 3PO, uh, and even the Banthas uh, on Tantooine. You remember the big, uh, like, woolly bison-looking things? I love those guys. It's an elephant. It's an elephant oh. with a bunch of stuff on it. They had some clear problems with that, seeing as how they did some filming in Death Valley, and then oh. also in Tunisia. Uh, the elephant's okay. It's just that... It was extremely uncomfortable for everybody, including the elephant, to wear all these layers. Like the guy guy doing a C-3PO, he had like a bodysuit on and then all these pieces of aluminum and, and plastic and everything kind of meshing over his body. Yeah. At one point, one, one of the metal parts on his foot like broke and poked up through the plastic bit and punctured him in the foot. Uh, oh. not, not like a big deal, you know, but just a, a costume malfunction that drew some blood, as we mentioned a few times. Um, I'm just glad you're not uh, adding dead elephants to my no, 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 uh, no, no, no. enjoyment No, of oh, Star Wars. Um, of course, yeah, there is also uh, the cantina scene, uh, fully populated with uh, various aliens. And uh, even though they didn't have speaking lines, some still made it to the action figure lines. And some of them made it into uh, post-film canon. Uh, there's one character, Ponda Baba, who is an Aqualish. Uh, he kind of looks like a walrus. You might remember that uh, the confrontation he had with Luke and Obi-Wan and Ponda Baba lost his arm <laughs> uh, because, you know, they got into a fight with a fucking old man Jedi uh, in the bar. Uh, that was one of the action figures, and they've ended up kind of expanding his lore, those two guys together, uh, beyond that. I really liked, uh, when it comes to this method, I really also like the Tusken Raiders or the Sand People. Um now, here's the thing about that is that you don't actually get to see their faces at all. So there, there weren't like uh, makeup effects. And if you dig into it, there is not a canonical answer as to who the Tuscan Raiders are, or what they look like. There's even a hint that they're made up of different races uh, and everything else. And so, you know, but yeah, they apparently like never take their masks off in public or around other people that are not Tuscan Raiders. Uh, there's also a lot of puppetry. We can think of a few easy examples, but I mean, clearly Jabba the Hutt, who had uh, three people inside. Uh, one would you know, manipulate one arm and his lips. Another one would manipulate an arm and the tongue. And another guy was tucked down into the tail, you know, and 
yeah, they all kind of had to work in tandem in this really cramped space, not really knowing what was happening on the outside of the suit, um, trying trying not to hit uh, other characters that were on the set or whatever else. But the thing that uh, really got me, the, the Ranker Pit, so this was stop motion. Uh, they also did it for the holographic board game uh, and the Tauntauns, where they just kind of had little models and, you know, they took one shot at a time and then strung them all together to make an animation. Uh, they even developed a thing for some of the scenes called Go Motion. Uh, so they would take a, take a single frame but kind of blur the edges uh, to where it would kind of give a more fluid feeling of, of movement. And they did that a lot with the uh, ATATs or ATATs or whatever you want to say. So it kind of gave, uh, it took away from some of the uh, jerkiness of stop motion that's kind of inherent in it. But that was also extremely painstaking. And if they ever messed something up, it would be like, well, there's the whole day gone because we messed up one frame. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, they had a lot going on in a lot of different ways. Uh, I really, I really liked the Ranker, the Ranker Pit in Java's Palace. Yeah, no. Uh, well, I feel like we can't, uh, on the topic of uh, stop motion uh, technology, um, we cannot end this section without talking about Ray Harryhausen, mm-hmm. uh, the creator of the form of stop motion model animation known as Dynamation. Right. It was created by, stop motion was created by a European named Vladislav, something, uh, a European guy, but okay. uh, Harryhausen did do more with it he kind of pioneered a a technique and and really kind of got famous for it yeah Yeah, uh, created all these wonderful movies uh he was a teenager when he saw uh willis o'brien's king kong uh effects and this inspired him and uh he went on to work under the tutelage of willis Mm o'brien in um uh for mighty joe young in 1949 uh he came into his own and uh worked fully independent in um the beast of Twenty Thousand fathoms uh, but he is known for, um, yeah, not just his large creatures, uh, but the uh, the Sinbad movies uh, to Jason and the Argonauts, One yeah. Million Years B.C. Uh, his final film was my childhood favorite, 1981's Clash of the Titans. Yeah, it was a good one. I really like Jason and the Argonauts, but I can't remember a whole lot about it. I think that I conflate that and Clash of the Titans a lot. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But he had a lot of, uh, yeah, he's using these groundbreaking, anima- uh, groundbreaking animation techniques. Um, he's really good at animating serpentine movements. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it's a lot of snakes, snake creatures, the Medusa, uh, obviously. I think a lot of his monsters um, had a very sympathetic quality. I, I can recall really feeling, especially for some of the more humanoid monsters with their very human movements, uh, really feeling for these animals. Oh, yeah. There was always attention that was paid whenever... Um... Some of the older ones where there's a, yeah, like a dinosaur battle or, or whatnot, um, whenever one of them falls uh, and, and is killed, they still have like a little bit of a last last gasp, you know, uh, mm-hmm. he, he paid attention to that kind of detail. Uh, instead of just falling over and being dead, there had to be like a little bit more writhing involved. Yeah, uh, all, yeah. all kinds of subtle movements that, that, that make a creature something you can really empathize with. Yeah, yeah, we could probably talk about Ray Harryhausen and some of the earlier pioneers of uh, creature animation, but uh, uh, but we still have not gotten to uh, horror and sci-fi. It's a lot, yeah. Well, you know, Jen, uh, kind of looking at the docket and everything here, um, this is kind of a lot. <laughs> I think that we might mm. 
need to do a two-parter on this. Yeah, we're gonna do, do uh, we're gonna do a two-parter um, because we really want to talk about some sci-fi horror and horror. Yeah, I think we're gonna go ahead and get into that in the next episode. This is our first two-part episode. There you go, number number forty and number forty-one uh, together forever. If you if you enjoy this kind of thing and you're interested in the uh, feats of imagination and engineering uh, that it takes to bring these uh, types of worlds to life and these uh, types of creatures, we're going to be talk some, talking about some creatures uh, right out of your nightmares uh, on next week's show. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I guess trigger warning, skip that if you don't uh, like horror. <laughs> But if you do like horror, um, you can contact us at uh, we're trying show at gmail.com or you can catch us at our Instagram. Radiogripe TX. Radiogripe TX. And yeah. uh, let us know what uh, what you want to talk about um, or if we didn't mention some of your favorite fantasy and uh, sci-fi uh, creatures. Go ahead and uh, hit us with your, with your nerddom. That's fine. We're into it. Yeah, uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Trevor and Mental State Fair for providing our theme song and Dying in Texas and to Alex Cuervo of Spectre Static providing all the good stuff that you hear here and there. This is a good one and I'm not too surprised that it's uh, that it is kind of a lot to go over. It takes a lot of time to really talk about stuff you like. Yeah, I'm just glad this didn't involve, uh, it devolve into an Ernest Klein-esque uh, us shouting things that we like. Right, right, right. <laughs> but- yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into some details and specifics and some some fun uh, uh, Fangoria type uh, stories uh, on this next week's episode. Yeah, for sure. Uh, y'all stay tuned. Reach out to us on the social meds, and uh, everybody stay cool. This has been Radio Greg. Yeah, right.